0: I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much.
1: There's people that just want to buy a car and then drive it until the wheels fall off. No oil change. Doing that with your body is probably not a great idea. At least getting basic preventive medicine is gonna give you a higher quality of life because we can't just get a new body. Then there's people that get their oil changed and tires rotated. They have no interest in extending the health span of their car. Like um, they don't care about the handling or performance or whatnot, or how often it breaks down when the car gets old. And that's okay to do with your body. How I look at it personally and how a lot of my patients look at it is um, we have one body and it makes a lot of sense to keep that body as high performing as possible.
0: It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today is a rebroadcast of my original conversation with Dr. Kyle Gillette from earlier this year. As the year slowly winds down, I have picked some of my favorite conversations from 2023 that I felt really fortified an understanding of a topic or had pertinent solutions for the problem. And this episode ticks off all of those boxes, We discuss with Dr. Gillette testosterone, we talk about dihydrotestosterone or DHT, we talk about DHA, and we unravel how these hormones transform through the various stages of both a man and a woman's life. We touch on the critical role of sleep, we discuss the complexities of PCOS, and we talk about hair and hair loss. We also explore TRT or testosterone replacement therapy and the broader spectrum of hormone replacement therapy for women. We also talk about obesity and explore the neurobiology and genetic foundations that contribute to this complex issue. This was one of my top conversations this year. It is ripe with good information. It's going to better help you understand hormones, specifically androgens in this case, as well as how we can correct excess androgens or not enough. So, without further delay, please enjoy this rebroadcast with Dr. Kyle Gillette. Dr. Kyle Gillette, I am just so thrilled to have you on The Better Show. Welcome.
1: Thank you, I appreciate it.
0: We are gonna be talking today about hormones. We need to um, go on this little geeky magic carpet ride on testosterone specifically, and we can talk about how those things change over the arc of a woman and a man's uh, life. I'd love to talk about both sexes today. And maybe we'll start off with some of the myths around testosterone, I think that there's some real misconceptions uh, for women and for men um, around even just the abundance of the hormone, uh, particularly for women, I think phenotypically, we usually ascribe estrogen as the female hormone and testosterone as the male hormone. Uh, So I'd love for you to touch on what are some of the common myths that you see uh, in clinical practice around testosterone for men and for
1: women. Myth number one would have to be that testosterone is exclusively a male hormone and not a female hormone. The average level of circulating testosterone compared to estradiol, testosterone is kind of the main androgen. Estradiol is the strongest estrogen. The ratio is about four to one. So um, and that's circulating. It's not necessarily what's synthesized. But I think part of this misconception is uh, just literally because of the units in the lab. So estradiol is usually measured in picograms per milliliter, which is a factor of 10 different from testosterone, which is measured usually in nanograms per deciliter. So a woman will see her level of testosterone and say yeah, it's 40, and then she'll see her level of uh, estradiol and see that it's 150. But really, if you were going to have equitable units, that would be 15 estradiol and 40 testosterone. And then also understanding that Testosterone aromatizes in both males and females. So testosterone does convert to estrogen in both and other androgens and uh, also aromatize. Testosterone is not the only androgen that aromatizes. So that's the main myth. The clinical takeaway or the key point for this would be not to be scared of excess androgen any more than excess estrogen or even excess progestogen. Um, certainly estrogen dominance and androgen dominance are uh, on the PCOS spectrum. But um, that's the high level view of androgen in women. Later, I'm sure we can get into like differences in intracellular, like secondary effects after the androgen actually binds and insulin resistance and such. But that's a good takeaway to start with.
0: All right. So let's, let's establish baseline. So this is where I always like to start, even in clinical practice, someone comes in, it's like, let's establish some baseline measurements. If someone is Um, looking to optimize their hormones over the arc of their life, let's say, what would be a, uh, when we're looking to acquire objective data, what would be some labs that you might want to see? I mean, I always, it's like the earlier, the better. That's, you know, it's like the best time to do it was 10 years ago. The second best time to do it is today. What would be sort of a lab, uh, like a complete lab panel, let's say, uh, if you're looking to understand Uh, hormones, and what we want to be tracking over time.
1: Yeah. And I do wish that humans were like cars and that they came with detailed uh, owner's manuals. And they also... So when cars exit the factory, you hook them up to a computer. And I'm not a mechanic. I don't know what it does, but it spits out a report and says, this is right and this is wrong and... um, or this could be optimized. This is going to affect your performance or the life of the car um, because they want to know that before they put a warranty on it. Unfortunately, we don't come with warranties. And unfortunately, we also cannot just get a new body if we break down completely. So the way I look at it is at some point, um, you know, if you're a child, then obviously you need to talk about like whatever's going on with your parents and your guardian needs to make the decision for you. But when you're a young adult in your 20s, uh, that's definitely a time to get what I call a complete lab panel. Um, I've, at some point, we got this question so much that we decided for public health benefit. I've just posted all of the like female recommended lab panels and male recommended lab panels on my website. It's gillettehealth.com. But um, a complete or comprehensive lab panel is a very subjective thing. For example, there's some services that have like an ultimate panel. So I also have an ultimate panel that's kind of similar, but I actually kind of consider that a bare bones panel. So um, definitely you want to get your various estrogen levels, certainly estradiol, and you want it to be an accurate assay. You want to take into account, are you on an oral contraceptive at the time? Is there something else that could be skewing these results? When do you get them? So if you're getting them as like a baseline panel during ovulatory phase seems reasonable, especially if you feel best during that time. Um, If you're looking into fertility, uh, acutely, then perhaps luteal phase, which is like day 21 after is reasonable. If you're looking into like ovarian health or getting antral follicle count at the same time, then perhaps, um, early follicular phase, like day three to five is reasonable.
0: Awesome. I love that. So let's, um, let's, let's kind of dive into, uh, you talk about six pillars of, uh, health and wellness, uh, many of which align uh, with my own, which is which is lovely to see. And I, I, I want to make sure as we as we're moving through this discussion that we're taking a lens to talk both about women, which we we do of course on the show a lot, but also for our beautiful men, because I feel like there is less maybe cultural permission uh, for men to discuss things like changes in cognition or changes in libido or changes in affect. Uh, Whereas for women, even though I think that there still needs to be a lot of progress in not dismissing females as, you know, or the symptoms that they're experiencing just as a function of age, or this is just how it is. And I think that there needs to be more female centric, um, more of a intimate understanding of how the female body changes. I think that there is a certain level of permission that we have where we might talk about menstrual cycle, flow, pain, uh, all the things that we might experience, let's say in our, in our fertile years, as it relates to our, um, as it relates to our, our reproductive cycle. So let's talk about, um, your six pillars, um, and maybe you can outline them for us and, and then we can kind of dive into, t- into some of the, um, as- actionable items in terms of strategies for optimizing, uh, each, of, each of the, um, each of the pillars that you talk about.
1: Yeah, the six pillars the first two are diet and exercise. They are uh, extremely important. That's why I've made them the first two. And, and highly debated, aliter- highly yeah. debated. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and at the, the answer to everything is it depends and you need an individualized interdisciplinary approach. But uh, after that, I used alliteration and I recently added a seventh one um, after my podcast with Rich Roll. He convinced me to add social, but I used mm-hmm. S's. So you have sleep as number three, which is arguably number three. And then they're not really in order after that. But there's sunlight, that includes hot exposure, cold exposure. Um, there's stress, and that includes um, like response to normal stress, not necessarily eliminating all stress, but stress control. And then um, there is spirit as well. So that's just Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like what's your metaphysical purposes, self-actualization, if you will, on the um, pyramid of needs. And then uh, social was the last one that I added. Um, And that's just uh, like a, basically a term that says your close unit, uh, whatever you want to call it, but basically your close friends and your family, especially people that you live with, um, that includes social determinants of health, which is basically the situation that you happen to be in will affect your health outcome, regardless of the other lifestyle pillars.
0: I definitely want to dive into that because I think that if there was anything that was highlighted Um, over the last several years with the pandemic was how much we need each other. I think Rich was uh, well, uh, well, you were well advised, we'll say that, because I, I think that that is a really, really important aspect to health. That I myself overlooked for many, many years. I'm like, ah, people. I don't need them. You know, like I can if I get the diet and the exercise, I get my coffee with my sunlight, you know, I have my espresso in the morning, you know, I can people when I want and I don't need to people when I don't want. And I, I do think that um as I'm maybe maybe getting older and, and hopefully wiser, uh, not just older, that I do see the the value in that as well. So let's actually, let's parse apart each one. So diet, certainly, the, and there are uh, almost cultural wars um, between uh, you know ideologies in terms of what is the best diet for humans. I'm gonna make lots of people angry here when I say I think that we probably should be having some version of an omnivorous diet, like meat. Like I think that we evolved to eat meat and we evolved to eat plants. So I'm simultaneously pissing off all my carnivore <laughs> fans and vegan fans. Uh, and I love you and it's okay. We can, we can, we can agree to disagree. Um, can you speak a little bit about, you know, the answer is always, it depends where do you fall in terms of, uh, how you might structure, um, and, and the nuance as well, because it, it's, it's a, it's almost a lazy question to say, what's the best, what's the best diet for humans, uh, because there is no one, you know, the best diet is the one that you can stick to over the long term. And that's going to really vary depending on a whole host of things, you know, all the things, you know, the social aspect that you talked about, your sleep, your, you know, all, all of the things that that we might be doing, uh, genetic, in, internal and, and, and external factors. So what are some of the, maybe I'll reframe it and say, what are some of the considerations that you, um, that you think about when you are designing let's say, uh, a diet for uh, for a patient. And we can include everything from genetic polymorphisms to uh, autoimmunity to like all, all of the things. What are some ways that you think about uh, designing uh, a nutrition program for someone?
1: The first consideration would be how likely is the patient to adhere to this diet? And then what time frame are you looking at? So are you using, are you excluding certain things from like a both diagnostic and therapeutic approach and then seeing how they respond to it? Or is this a, uh, not really even a diet at all, which is the best diet, of course, just the lifestyle change where they will adhere to that indefinitely. Um, and then the other thing to take into account is what is the situation that this patient is in? So uh, this could factor in anything from cost, like socioeconomic situations. It could factor in food deserts. Um, Do they have, uh, like, if they're not able to get groceries shipped to their doorstep, um, is there a place that has the things that they would like to diet with? It also factors in uh, different pathologies and disease states. Celiac is a very easy one to point out. Um, Avoidance of gluten. So, you know, there's, Uh, a lot of different variations of that another thing that you mentioned is do they have and it's not necessarily just SNPs. so a SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism for those that are wondering it's basically a change in one letter think of your genome as a as an encyclopedia britannica a SNP is a change of one letter in one word of one paragraph of one chapter of one book of the encyclopedia Um, they do happen to be the most commonly changed letters and they can be clinically significant, but usually one SNP in and of itself, so you're talking about like nutrigenomics or whatever you want to call it, is not as clinically applicable as like what the labs are looking like. A good example is a MTHFR. It's a very common one. It's certainly clinically significant, but there's several different SNPs that you can have, but it's not just the um, four most commonly checked SNPs. Um, you can have many other mutations in the gene, but at the end of the day, you're still going to follow a B12 and a folate and a homocysteine and maybe an MMA, which is methylmalonic acid, basically assessing your methylation function. And depending on that, then you can make dietary changes or supplements. Um, and for that matter, you can almost always make a dietary change instead of a supplement. It, sometimes it's just more difficult. So that kind of gets into the nuance of um, incorporating diet as medicine i'm a strong believer that food is medicine and many things can be treated with dietary changes it's actually how they discovered uh, pernicious anemia being due to I believe uh b12 and folate deficiencies is um they prescribed a diet and this was 100 years ago
0: and i think the other thing to consideration uh, the other thing to consider albeit uh, a temporary one is do you feel better on this diet You know, do you, is is it helping with your joint pain, let's say, and I'll, I'll bring up autoimmunity because I often, um, will start with a therapeutic intervention. They don't stay here, but I will often put them, um, on a very low, if not a no carb or carbohydrate diet temporarily. Uh, and then we often see things like joint, uh, pain resolution. Uh, we might see that, um, morning puffiness or sluggishness uh uh, ameliorated and a whole host of other things so i i also like to look at biofeedback of the patient as well like do you feel better because what invariably happens of course is if they stay on that intervention for too long they sort of i like to say sort of ride the air like they ride the wave under the curve right like they sort of like the max, they sort of ride out that maximal benefit that they're going to have from that intervention and then they start feeling worse and unfortunately, what I find in terms of the psychology of the patient, what they end up thinking is, oh, well, you know what, I'm not, like, I've been slipping up on my carnivore a little bit. Like, I really need to tighten that up. Or I've been, you know, I maybe I'm not doing my keto the way that I was when I, and they sort of double down on the intervention when really what is required is now a change in the in the intervention. Like they've sort of ridden out the maximal benefit that they're gonna that they're gonna derive from it. Would you, would you agree with that? Is that something that you've observed as well?
1: Yeah. Um there's definitely a biofeedback or subjective component. Um incorporating the objective data with the subjective data, whether you're monitoring a medication, a supplement, or a dietary change is very important. Um that made me think of a, a I guess a interesting phenomenon, and this this would go under the art of the practice of medicine, is recognizing patterns and phenotypes. For example, if there's a patient, uh, if they're like a fertility patient or recurrent miscarriage or whatnot, there's certainly patterns, for example, like where on the hypothalamic amenorrhea spectrum is that patient? Where on the PCOS spectrum is that patient? And the same thing is true of diet. For example, there's this phenotype of um, low BMI, uh, in general, low body mass, whether it's lean or um, body fat and lots of autoimmunity, maybe multiple, maybe Hashimoto's and Crohn's, maybe something else as well. Um, and they respond extremely well to very low carb diets, even carnivore diets. So there's certainly a, a phenotype that perhaps we don't know exactly why that, um, is always the case, but I definitely see it in clinical practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's move into hormones. I want to uh, envelop uh, in going through each of the of your six pillars. I think that we'll touch on them um, as we as we uh, move through um, the different hormones that we have. And I wanted to maybe start off uh, with testosterone. I think that um, as we as we started off, I think that there are there are a few different testosterones. Uh, so we have dihydrotestosterone, which I want to talk about. We have, or I should say androgens. So we have androgens, uh, some are stronger, some are weaker. And maybe we can just, just by way of definition, talk about some of the different androgens, um, their strength, let's say, and then some of the we can start off with like some of the positive. And when we're talking about this, we're just talking about endogenously produced, like inside the body, there's no external, uh, we're not taking exogenous testosterones, let's say, um, what are some of the positive positive? And we'll start with positive uh, consequences of having adequate amounts of these androgens in the body. So first, let's talk about them. And then we can talk about their, their role in the body, their physiological role in the body.
1: Some of the main androgens are DHEA, which is often adrenally produced, it's dehydroepiandrosterone. And that can convert to testosterone. Androgens can convert back and forth um, between each other after the steroidogenesis cascade or after they're synthesized endogenously. You have testosterone, Um, kind of the main androgen. Um, In a lot of, so there's, um, in different tissues, different androgens have different um, specificities to the androgen receptor, which I'll get into a bit. But uh, DHT is another um, well-known androgen, also known as dihydrotestosterone. It's converted from testosterone um, via 5-alpha reductase. One of the analogies that I make is that um, in your body, there's um, different types of cells, for example, a prostate cell, a hair follicle cell, a genitourinary skin cell, a non-genitourinary skin cell, you know, muscle cell, cardiac cell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But how we measure them in the serum? Think of that as a plumbing pipe that goes back and forth between these different buckets. Sometimes we also measure them in the saliva or the urine. Think of that as after they've been metabolized and exited the system. Think of that as like a small leak in the pipe or a tiny little pipe, just taking little bits off of the plumbing. But the amount that is in the plumbing, the pipes going between, think of that as your blood vessels, does not, is not necessarily equate to the intracellular level. This is called intra It's particularly important after menopause. Dr. Fernand Labrie did a lot of research in that, showing that DHEA converted to all of the body's estradiol after menopause. Um, and is particularly important inside the cell. But if you think about it, um, even uh, natural things that happen to inhibit this 5-alpha reductase enzyme do so unevenly in various cells. And also, depending on the pathology, often you convert testosterone to DHT at different levels throughout the cell. For example, in sebaceous cells, DHEA and testosterone both are very quickly 5-alpha reduced, often greater than 50% of it, is 5-alpha reduced, which explains why a lot of people who take high amounts of uh, exogenous DHEA get acne. So understanding that in each of the various systems is important, especially when it comes to, for example, in the ovary, many people overexpress sensitive androgen receptors, and they can also overexpress 5-alpha reductase. So you have more DHEA. In the fecal
0: the- the cells we're talking about right now.
1: Um, Throughout the ovary. Throughout the ovary, okay. Yep, and and hair follicle cells are another common one, Mm -hmm. Um, and hirsutism. So that's the way I think of uh, androgens is, yes, you have the serum level. Past that, you have the intracellular level. Past that, you have the density of the receptor, which is the androgen receptor. It's on the X chromosome. So if you have an XX genotype, you have two of them. If you have a XY genotype, you have one androgen receptor. One particularly interesting group of study that uh, my colleague and I, James, like to, we do we call them non-systematic reviews, but essentially reviews of the clinical literature is the XXY phenotype or the Klinefelter's phenotype because those individuals do have two androgen receptors. So you can see if they respond to androgens more similarly to a XX genotype or an XY genotype or both.
0: So I think the, the point that you're trying to say here is that we're getting our androgen receptor, um from our maternal lineage so we are uh, and that and and that receptor in and of itself is going to be more sensitive let's say than the the, and do we receive one from our from our paternal lineage from our father
1: females do and individuals with that have two x chromosomes receive a paternal
0: receive one from the paternal and so the one that is dominant is the one that is going to be more sensitive
1: In PCOS, there's something called mosaicism. So a lot of pathologies have mosaicism, actually. Um, But in mosaicism, uh, usually you would expect 50% and 50% um, of your androgen receptor. So you'd expect methylation or kind of like deactivation of one and activation of the other, about half and half in each tissue. Mm -hmm. But in cases of PCOS, especially androgen dominance, uh, like predominant PCOS, so if you think of that phenotype, it's usually they have signs and symptoms of androgen dominance or virilization or hirsutism, um, often anovulatory cycles or oligomenorrhea, and then they don't have a particularly high amount of insulin resistance. Perhaps they are like relatively metabolically healthy. In those individuals, you have um, a epigenetic change where greater than seventy, sometimes even greater than ninety percent of the more sensitive androgen receptor is turned on, especially in tissues, in the ovary and in hair follicles, etc. So in that, yes, you can reset the epigenetics, but it can be difficult and it can be relatively time consuming. I guess we kind of rabbit trailed a little bit there, but it just goes to show like that's why a lot of individuals that are having significant androgen dominant symptoms, you check a testosterone and even a free testosterone and SHBG, and it can look relatively normal, but inside the cell, you're having androgen dominance.
0: So just, just keeping with that for a moment, we, so we were talking about the epigenome, but at the level of the genome as well, are we not seeing an increase in 5-alpha reductase in these individuals as well, where they are converting more testosterone to dihydrotestosterone?
1: There is some genetic variation in the levels of 5-alpha reductase and also aromatase, um, for that analogy I use is different pools. So let's say you have your pool of testosterone. Your testosterone can be uh, metabolized and also converted to other hormones like estrogen or uh, DHT. For example, if you give someone a, a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, even a relatively low dose, often estrogen increases by about 10%. And that's just because there's a dam between these two pools. So you're going to push more towards one way. So um, depending on... Uh, again, like what your genetics are and also what food you're consuming or what supplements you're taking. For example, black pepper fruit extract, biopurine, it's done a lot of things to um, increase bioavailability. And that is also a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So potentially that can make estrogen dominance worse. Um, there's a lot of examples of this, but um, yes, it's true that there is just some genetic variation and uh, some people are born with uh higher or lower levels of 5-alpha ductase and aromatase.
0: Okay, let's come back up a minute. Um, so we we talked about, so we're going we're gonna to get, I want to talk about some of the clinical outcomes. PCOS is definitely something I want to um, uh, talk a little bit about further. But let's just talk, generally speaking now, what are the positive consequences of production of DHT? Because one of the things that I hear clinically, particularly in my... Uh, late perimenopause and in my menopausal women is that, you know, we can certainly talk about libido, which, you know, testosterone's are, are, uh, you know, famous for, but the, the consistent through line that I also hear is I just don't feel the same. Like I'm just not as I take less risks. I'm not as driven as I used to be. I don't, I feel like my personality, I feel like I used to be a lion and now I'm a sheep. Um, what can you, what can you uh, maybe elaborate on in terms of affect, cognition, and certainly all the other things that we, that we know about testosterone? What are some of the consequences of producing DHT uh, in the body, both male and female?
1: One of the special things about DHT is that it's a particularly strong androgen. So if you happen to be someone that has lower levels of other androgens, um, uh, after menopause, theca cells don't produce testosterone very well. Sometimes they do though. And sometimes they're kind of a second spike. Um, uh, even after the production of estrogen and progesterone has stopped. Um, part of that's just due to really high LH kind of like squeezes the last bit out of the assembly line of the manufacturing plant, if you will. Right. But anyway, DHT is a very strong androgen. So if you think about the androgen receptor as a door, um, You have a certain number of doors that's your density and then you also have things like tadalafil or l-carnitine can help with androgen receptor density in the cytoplasm you also have regulation by heat shock proteins that's why cold exposure or heat therapy can potentially be helpful for the density of the androgen receptor and then um, again depending on your genetics and epigenetics it might be a very heavy steel door or it might be a really light wooden door so if you've lost some of that androgenicity the effort feeling good the motivation, the drive, it's more likely that you either have a lower number of doors or a heavy steel door. And it doesn't really matter which way because think of your androgens as um, people and DHT would be a very strong person, world's strongest man, whatever you want to call it. It's
0: like, I call it super testosterone. It's like you have T and then you have like super T, like jacked T. Yeah, yeah.
1: So there's not a special receptor, but that molecule is going to be particularly good at pushing that door open even by itself or with relatively lower like testosterone minions, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that's what's special about it is it doesn't require a very high level to push open. But um, that being said, if you had significantly more testosterone, then um, DHT would not be helpful. Um, The main reason why we don't use 5-alpha reductase inhibitors more is that they inhibit more enzymes than just testosterone to DHT. Also, it can be kind of hard to tell how heavy that door is.
0: Right. So if you are a woman in menopause, let's say, um, I mean, my mind um, immediately goes to resistance training and things that can naturally augment um, levels of testosterone. But what are some, so you mentioned uh, cold therapy, heat therapy as as changing the uh, sensitivity of the androgen receptor. What are some other things that we might think about to improve... Uh, either um, conversion of T to DHT, and then um, DHT, or just optimizing our levels of DHT in the body?
1: Regarding specifically optimizing DHT, I guess the first question would be, can you optimize testosterone first without specifically trying to optimize DHT? And the answer to that is, usually you want to do both hand in hand. Because if you can improve your testosterone that's going to trickle down secondarily to DHT. One of the main things that you can do is uh, not have the most common pathologies like insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome and sleep apnea and stay at an ideal body composition. So this is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but if you have lower body fat mass and lower body fat percentage, you're going to aromatize less. So you're going to have more testosterone in the pool and more like balance of androgen to other hormones the other things that you can do is yes there's always supplements for everything um potentially uh creatine can help so uh, creatine in uh several studies does increase dht Mono- but can hydrate, also...
0: we're talking about creatine monohydrate yeah. Yeah.
1: creatine monohydrate is kind of the gold standard it's the highest bing for your buck in value but other forms of creatine are also fine to use okay um But yeah, uh, creatine can increase DHT and then, uh, think about, uh, other things that are going to control your level of aromatase again, going back to the pool analogy. So minimizing alcohol consumption can certainly help if you're deficient in things like boron that can certainly help free up testosterone. Aromatase likes testosterone to be unbound when it converts it to DHT. So those would be the main things to think about, um, a lot of times it's not necessarily thinking about optimizing your DHT or testosterone in isolation, but both concurrently.
0: Some of the circles that, uh, some of the colleagues that I, that I speak to and, you know, people who are, um, adamant about hormone replacement therapy of which I am a fan. Uh, and when I get to that point, uh, certainly, uh, absolutely will consider it, but there does seem to be a, a group of, um, a a, a school of thought where the idea is that women can and should be looking to not only optimize their fertility during their fertile years, let's say, but to try and extend that, uh, as much as they can. So into and beyond when they might have naturally, uh, stopped, um, uh, cycling. What are what are your thoughts if you have any on that? I don't. I know this is a bit of a left question out of left field, but what are your thoughts on extending fertility in women? And can we do that um, via even things like TRT and other you know HRT generally? What are What are your thoughts on uh, extending the fertile window for women?
1: This is something that should be considered on a case by case basis for sure. The interventions that are known to extend fertility hormonal and non-hormonal, for example, rapamycin are mostly based on um, non-human, so like non-human clinical studies. There is definitely ways that we know that it could, but the opportunity cost for that is often relatively high. So if you know early enough on to where the intervention will be very efficacious and likely to extend the window, I suppose the question would be, what are the other options for example freezing ova or um, even embryos in some cases so it kind of depends on the individual um, until there is a perfectly safe option which um, might not happen in our lifetimes yeah good Um, luck uh, yeah yeah but (laughs) i would wonder um, other than just being metabolically healthy there's probably not an intervention that i would apply across the board to everybody
0: yeah. And I think that it, it comes less from this idea of actually reproducing. It, it comes less from the idea of let's have a you know mother in her 60s, but it's, it's really to reap the benefits of the higher levels of testosterone, as we've been discussing, the higher levels of estradiol. Um, and certainly when we think about sort of the big four, cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, cancer, uh, stroke, uh, I think that women have a distinct metabolic advantage, uh, at least in onset, age of onset with cardiovascular disease. It does seem to be this sort of phasic shift by something like 10 to 15 years, let's say. Um, um, And the risk sort of exponentially starts to increase after cessation of or after entering into menopause, I'll say it that way. So I think that some of the conversations is, well, why aren't we just fertile forever? <laughs> uh, you know, why can't we just continue to reap those benefits uh, and just, you know, not get pregnant when you're 80, let's say, uh, because who wants that? But I I think um, that that's sort of where I hear some of the discussion going. And I've had a couple of people on the podcast who are just big advocates of bioidenticals and then, and then hormone replacement therapy as a as a general construct, and I, I don't know exactly where I've, I, I land on that yet. I think it's an interesting thought. It's sort of. Uh, and I know that we're getting a little off topic, I promised to wrangle it back in. But it's sort of this like, well, can we live forever? You know, when we hear of some of the, you know, the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos of the world, like, how can we achieve, you know, Dr. David Sinclair, like, how can we live forever? Or how can we slow down the aging process, such that we extend lifespan? So I think that that's part of that bigger conversation. And it's an interesting one to have. I just don't know where I, I just don't know where I fall yet. So I wanted to just out of Pure curiosity, if you had any thoughts or any any um, uh, imprints in, in terms of where you fell with that, with extending lifespan and then for women extending their fertile window.
1: My thoughts in regard to clinical practice is um, every individual should consider how long they want to extend their health span. One analogy that I often make is Uh, I'm actually not a car person, but I make car analogies from time to time because they're also fairly intricate machines with an electrical system, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, um, there's people that just want to buy a car and then drive it until the wheels fall off. No oil change from like doing that with your body is probably not a great idea. At least getting basic preventive medicine is going to give you a higher quality of life because we can't just get a new body. Then there's people that get their oil changed and tires rotated. They have no interest in extending the health span of their car. Like um, they don't care about the handling or performance or whatnot, or how often it breaks down when the car gets old. And that's okay to do with your body. Um, How I look at it personally and how a lot of my patients look at it is um, we have one body and it makes a lot of sense to keep that body as high performing as possible I'm I'm a Christian, so I think keeping your body as a temple is part of that, but um, basically not necessarily making it a garage queen, but do your preventive maintenance and get some objective data as much as possible. Hormone replacement in females is particularly important for giving yourself the best shot possible to be as high performing as possible throughout an entire lifespan um especially if you're expect like your life expectancy let's say a lot of people in your family live until they're 100 and most women in the family go through menopause in their early 50s um now that this is just looking at the benefits there's obviously a balance of benefits and risks to everything but in order to have that long health span goal it would be very hard to have a reasonably high quality of life at age 100 without hormone replacement therapy
0: Right. Yeah. I, I love the analogy of your home as a temple. It is, or your body as a temple. I often say it's the only home that you really live in. Um, and I I do think that it's worth, uh, worshiping and, uh, certainly having reverence for, um, and I often joke like, "Thank goodness I wasn't consulted in the uh, in the design because it is far more complex than I could ever, you know, that I could ever uh, ever conceive of." So let's let's come back to supplements because we were talking and we're on TRT, we're on sort of like hormone replacement. So I kind of want to talk about TRT both for men and women. Uh, it is there's so much controversy around uh, TRT for women, which I wanted. Uh, maybe to touch on with you as well. But we were on supplements and I was going to ask you about L-carnitine and fertility. Can you touch on how that supplement may impact um, fertility, both for men uh, and women?
1: So L-carnitine is one of the smallest, it's technically a peptide, it's a dipeptide, two amino acids, methionine and lysine, I think. But anyway, think of it as the fuel pump for your mitochondrial engine, the powerhouse of the cell, as I think they still teach in school. They do. But that that L-carnitine... Um, is incorporated into the carnitine palmitoyl coenzyme A shuttle. It takes energy back and forth across the mitochondrial membrane. So you don't necessarily want, Sometimes, a lot of times I measure carnitine, esterified carnitine, and free carnitine in the serum, but you actually want it inside the cell. Things like TTA, which is a type of fatty acid, kind of a cousin of MCT, help push carnitine in the cell so you can actually use it, kind of like you want to push glucose in the cell to actually use it. But then carnitine will help pump the fuel in, um, like uh, medium chain fatty acids, um, so that the mitochondria will have that substrate to produce energy. So um, there's a couple reasons why this can be helpful. Insulin resistance is one of them. It can help potentially lower inflammatory markers like CRP. And then also it is just literally providing the energy for cellular processes to happen, like spindle formation um, a different, uh, like the, the entire process of going from a germ cell to a gamete and then through fertilization for, for males as well. Um, spermatozoa have flagella. Those need energy to function. Um, so it can be particularly helpful. Um, yes, you can get some carnitine from the diet. That's why carne is the root word, of course, (laughs) but, um, so you can get it from meat or anything that can, that has amino acids. You can synthesize it, but um, getting like a supra physiologic level to overload it is reasonable in many cases of fertility. It's fairly well studied in and um, alveolatory pathologies like PCOS.
0: And what are, what are the dosages that we're talking about here? So we can get it from food. Um, and I actually love that you, uh, that you brought up the root word of it. That's, that'll certainly help. That helps me remember sort of, um, you know, the genus, if you will. But um, so it's, I'm going to pr- potentially improve sperm uh, quality, as you mentioned, uh, egg quality, uh, let's say, and what are what are the dosages that we're talking about? And how are we taking it? So I know that, you know, maybe most people listening might be thinking about a supplement. Um, are there other ways that we might uh, ingest L-carnitine as well?
1: Your perfect candidate, I guess, would be someone on a completely plant-based diet, um, a low-protein plant-based diet. Of course, other dietary changes should probably be made as well. But uh, that is a great candidate for L-carnitine. Um, perhaps the worst candidate would be someone on a carnivore diet with dysbiosis. When taken orally, so in capsules, it can convert to TMAO kind of like choline or choline precursors. Mm-hmm. And this happens um, due to gut microbiota changes. So, um, you know, uh, treating or optimizing your gut microbiome, uh, again, often through diet and even exercise is um, one important way to help decrease conversion to TMAO, but things like berberine or even allicin, which is um, a compound in garlic, garlic yeah. can also help decrease the conversion to TMAO. You can also inject it um, intramuscularly or even subcutaneously or even dermally, um, but usually shallow intramuscular is the way to inject it. A dose for injectable L-carnitine would be somewhere between like 300 and 500 mg. And then, and it's an aqueous solution. So potentially it can be combined with other aqueous non carrier oil based injections. And then orally, it's usually between um, 1,500 and even up to uh, 5,000 grams.
0: So if I'm just looking at these numbers, 300 to 500 MIGs for an injection, 1,500 to 5,000 MIGs, it's like 10 times the amount.
1: It's about 5 to 15% bioavailable.
0: In caps, in capsule, when you're taking it Correct. orally. Correct. Yeah.
1: yeah. So if you take, let's say you take five thousand orally, then you'll probably absorb five hundred migs or less.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, if if finances are not a problem, this is not this is not an issue. But I can just imagine first of all, getting an L-carn like what I would have to, I, I would have to look, but I don't even know what the dosage comes in, in a capsule. Like, first of all, that's a lot of capsules. Um, yeah, and then you're going to um, run through several bottles. Very, I w- I would imagine in a short, in a shorter amount of time. Yeah. Um,
1: most of the capsules come in 500 milligrams. So that is a ton of capsules. My friend Derek, um, 10. packed as much as possible into one capsule and there's 750 migs. He is a company gorilla mind. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not on their advisory board or anything, but right. that's what I personally take because the capsule load can be terrible with L-carnitine. That's a good Go- point.
0: Gorilla mind. I'll make sure that this is yeah. in the show notes for everyone, but gorilla mind and they have an L-carnitine. Okay. And then you're recommending in a capsule form as well for them to be taking that with berberine or is that in the aqueous solution, in the injectable as well? The uh, usually, the allison or the berberine?
1: Usually just in the capsule form. Um, that's if they're not at risk of hypoglycemia and just regular berberine with breakfast every day.
0: Okay. So like the same, like 500 MIGs, 500 milligrams, let's say before three times a day, let's say like you're dosing it sort of over the course after before each meal.
1: Yeah. You can dose carnitine three times a day, or you can dose it once a day as kind of like a large dose. Mm -hmm. I usually take mine all in the morning. Some people feel like they get a bit of a sympathetic response from carnitine, I feel like it kind of gives me the meat sweats. I was going to say, is that the TMAO? (laughs) Maybe adaptive thermogenesis. Yeah. Um, My TMAO in the serum has always been low, even Uh not taking berberine or allison or garlic, but I eat a decent amount of garlic in the diet. So I'm not sure if that's contributing or the probiotic that I take. But I've also seen blood work from individuals taking five grams a day, not on garlic, not on berberine and also very low TMAO. So the mm-hmm. TMAO conversion, even people taking a lot of choline precursors as well, there's not a super direct correlation with TMAO conversion, I believe, unless there's some um, gut microbiome issue.
0: Dysbiosis, something happening in the gut. Okay. Which is again, an individual issue that you can work with your practitioner to help solve. Yep. Okay. So we talk about L-carnitine. Uh, let's talk about boron. I hear a lot about uh, boron as a, a, a way to uh, improve uh, testosterone, uh, DHT as well. Can you speak a little bit about uh, boron and its role in um, hormone optimization?
1: Boron is an element. It's actually on the periodic table. I remember making a, a chart of it um, when I was a young child. But boron has been slowly depleted in many soils in developed countries. For example, the United States and Canada. You can actually get your Soil tested for boron. So if you're like a huge gardener or you eat a ton of food from around the house, that's that could be reasonable. But um, boron is uh, more important if you have less boron. So some people eat dates or raisins. These tend to come from areas like Turkey that have relatively high amounts of boron on the soil.
0: Greece, Lebanon. Yep.
1: Yeah. So yep, yep. Uh, like anything else, getting good sources of boron in the uh, in the diet is great. Occasionally, it is reasonable to take a supplement that has boron in it just to make sure that everything's backfilled, usually a dose between about two and eight milligrams a day. So boron, yeah, um, Yeah, usually three, three, five or six. It is actually a weak aromatase inhibitor. So it's kind of a very weak anti-estrogen that's Hmm. safe to take. And it can also help um, modulate SHBG. So acutely If you take a boron supplement, SHBG almost always goes down. But if you have decent levels of boron before, SHBG goes up. But if you run low on boron often, then um, taking boron continually can help keep SHBG down. But it's not one of those things that we can just give to literally everyone that will persistently keep SHBG low. So it can be important with hormone balance. The stronger your androgen, the more it binds SHBG. So if you lower SHBG, even if all of your other hormones remain the exact same, you will be more androgen dominant and less estrogen dominant.
0: Okay, so just for the audience, SHBG is sex hormone binding globulin, and as the name suggests, it binds sex hormones. Um, and then this is also when we're thinking about optimizing, let's say testosterone levels over the arc of your life, male or female, um, one of the, uh, I'll say, easier ways uh, to do that is to lower the amounts of SHBG. So lowering the amounts of the protein that binds up the testosterone's um, up in the blood. So you're saying that boron, can you say what you just, with that context, can you talk about, just say what you just said again uh, with boron and how it will change the SHBG uh, levels?
1: In some individuals, boron can persistently decrease SHBG, but in most people boron will just temporarily decrease shbg the more okay. insufficient you are in boron the more it helps i say that because there's many studies and if you don't study the population long enough boron will decrease shbg and then it will rise back up
0: and what is the ha- what are we talking about what is the half life here what is the when you say temporarily what are we talking about a half day a couple hours
1: um, if you study them for weeks, it doesn't appear to be that related to the half-life of SHBG. SHBG is a half-life of about one week, yeah. and it's produced primarily in the liver. The synthesis is in- inhibited by androgens binding to it and um, increased by estrogens binding to it. So um, and it also decreased by insulin binding to the insulin receptor in the liver. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if um, we know why the effect of boron decreasing SHBG is not persistent.
0: Okay. Why do you think, and this is um, just coming out of the heavy science for a minute, why do you think that TRT for women is wrapped up in so much controversy? Because I've, I've spoken to a couple of uh, OBGYNs on the show. Uh, one is a very good friend of mine, and he is always for whatever reason comes up against a lot of resistance when he is working with, you know, his other allied, um, uh, practitioners around giving testosterone for women. And I, uh, I often, uh, joke, um, maybe inappropriately, um, that, you know, a man all he has to do is kind of walk into um, you know, his off his doctor's office and say, you know, I haven't really been feeling myself lately. And just the doctor's just like tripping over himself to give or herself, you know, to give uh, this individual, let's say, a, a prescription for for testosterone. And maybe that is a little of an extreme visual. That doesn't always happen, of course, but it does seem that it is a arguably harder. Um, conversation maybe for a woman to go on TRT than it is for a man. Would you agree with that? I mean, maybe your predisposition position might be different, um, but is that what you, do you observe that at all with um, with the women that you talk to or the men that you talk to?
1: A lot of that depends on the clinic that you're going to. There's a lot of heterogeneity outside of the, I, I guess, the cultural situation, So at the end of the day, it's a public health problem. There's a, there's not a congruence between the high quality and the high amount of information that is being studied and then how the public in general educates them on that. Um, one example that I make with this is, um, the dichotomy of, uh, you know, androgens or testosterone should be included or considered in every female patient on HRT or even not on HRT versus it should never be considered just because the thesis of what most academic societies um, is saying, just because that thesis is not true, does not make the antithesis true. So there's a balance or somewhere in between. And that's what the practice of medicine and an individualized approach to each patient is supposed to do. Some of the problems is that the more one side tugs, the more the other side tugs in a tug of rope battle, and there's no room for give in between. So there's clinics where um, every single regimen includes testosterone, um, even if it, it's unnecessary. And there's clinics that never do that. That's why I named my like clinical approach individualized medicine. Yeah.
0: I want to I want to shift just slightly to talk about hair loss. I know that on your podcast uh, you've done several parts um, in terms of what are some of the contributing factors um, to hair loss, and I wanted to talk about this. From uh, we've been talking a little bit about PCOS and how we might, as as women, uh, you know, we've talked about hirsutism and we've talked about. Um, you know, certain forms having uh, maybe insulin resistance. Some forms of PCOS not having insulin resistance. But we what we also see, both in men and women, is uh, when we when we have androgen excess, we were talking about this with DHT earlier, uh, where we can see the individual, uh, let's say the localized effect of DHT. If we have too much of it, let's say in the hair, uh, in the scalp and in the hair follicle that we can see, um, male pattern baldness at least, uh, at least. Um, and I wanted to, I've, I've heard you talk on your show about kind of the different types of hair loss. And I thought that this would be a really, uh, really valuable to understand both the different types Uh, Because women can also experience male pattern baldness, let's say. Um, And then what are, uh, so we have that kind of hair loss. And then there's also just natural hair loss um, or a different type of hair loss that happens. And I wanted to maybe um, give you the opportunity to sort of walk us through some of the different um, phases of hair growth and shedding and then some ways that we might think about optimizing that or preventing it, I should say.
1: Yeah, there's obviously many types of hair loss that we don't necessarily need to get into. Um, For example, uh, immunogenic hair losses, like autoimmune diseases causing hair loss. But kind of the big theory would be androgenic alopecia, or also known as androgenetic alopecia. That's where the androgen is binding to the androgen receptor, causing gene transcription, and downstream to that miniaturization. And the follicle is going to die, and the stem cell will leave. So think of that as uh, if you're thinking of your hair as like a lawn grass and roots kind of killing the roots and then it leaves and the grass blade might look a little bit smaller until the end then you have um, female pattern baldness so that's related to um, estrogenic signaling and if someone's on an androgen even if it's before menopause it can suppress the release of estrogen but the androgen can also convert to estrogen it's so just depending on what the baseline profile is for that individual Another example would be uh, maybe hypothalamic amenorrhea or POI, which is premature ovarian insufficiency, early menopause. So you have less estrogen signaling over time, and um, it leads to a thinning of the hair. And then kind of the last variety would be deficiency and growth agonists. So whether that's growth hormone or whether that's other endogenously produced peptides that help upregulate growth of the hair, Um, that's another type. Um, This would kind of go hand in hand with ischemic hair loss where you have uh, like uh, a lot of tension and then you just ha- have hypoxic tissue damage to the follicle. So in th- those three types, um it's possible to have all three. It's possible to only have one. But in order to get maximum efficacy in a long term, this is like an investment. Um, your biggest bang for the buck in like the first month or two is going to be growth agonists like PRP, uh, potentially peptides, um, minoxidil is another one, latanoprost which is kind of like Latisse. Those are all in the growth agonist category. The anti-androgen category, that'd be like ketoconazole, caffeine, scrumolactone, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, like turmeric or even pumpkin seed oil, finasteride, dutasteride. And then um, as far as like the estrogen standpoint, usually it comes down to shifting the balance to estrogen or replacing different estrogens.
0: What is female pattern baldness?
1: Um. It's diffuse thinning. So it's kind of like, think of it as poor quality of the hair, but also thinning and or loss of the hair um, in all areas of the scalp. So not just like like the temples? Frontotemporal and and crown area. Yeah, it can be all over.
0: And that is a function of having lower, just generally lower estrogens.
1: Yes. Although treating with an antiandrogen often improves this. For example, if you treat someone with a topical dutasteride solution, their estrogens in the follicle themselves will go up like 10 or 20%. So often you can improve both with just one therapy.
0: Yeah, I I bring this up. This is another, again, when we talk about our beautiful women going through menopause, you know, as women, I think we have our, it's like our crown, right? It's like, it's part of our femininity. And in addition to some of our, you know, secondary sex characteristics, let's say, but having a full head of hair, I think um, when that changes uh, for women, it can be, it can be devastating. Um, and so you can go on Instagram, uh, as I have admittedly, and sometimes you um, will see interventions that you're like, I, I'm not exactly sure where the science is to back this up. And I wanted I wanted to talk to you about things like uh, scalp massage, um, as a way to maybe locally bring more blood into the area. And that might help with some of the pot- potentially some of the female, uh, pattern baldness. And you've mentioned dutasteride, uh, all, you know, some of the other, uh, medications, one of the things that, um, uh, etc. et cetera, one of the, one of the, um, things that I see a lot, Uh, is rosemary essential oil being either diluted in a carrier being applied directly to the scalp itself and then maybe massaged in Um, is there any evidence to suggest that rosemary oil can compare to let's see minoxidil finasteride some of the things that we've been we've been mentioning here
1: acutely a lot of the inventions or a lot of the interventions can help in the short run but The main problem with scalp massage-based techniques and essential oils, peppermint essential oil is actually my favorite one. Um, But a lot of the issue with that is that it's very difficult to adhere to and to keep it up over the course of many years uh, can be also very difficult. And actually just taking a pill of minoxidil um, can be difficult or applying topical minoxidil. Mm -hmm. And the amount of scalp massage needed to make a sustainable difference, like to, it can improve the quality, but think about it's acting as a fertilizer, but the root is still damaged and can still have slow miniaturization. Um, There's not a lot of studies on like scalp massage or topical essential oils over a course of many years, but there is lots of studies on just minoxidil. And minoxidil will certainly help over the course of many years, but if there is an uh, female pattern or male pattern baldness component to it then after several years um, the uh death of the hair follicle will still take place so kind of the, the roots still die eventually so my main takeaway would be if there is a female pattern baldness or male pattern especially if there's a male pattern baldness component making sure not to just use growth agonists and um, blood flow improvement.
0: Great. And where does iron status, uh, and maybe micro, uh, micronutrients play into the health of the hair, um, hair follicle, and then just the gen, you know, the, either the thickness of the hair itself or preventing some of the male and female pattern baldness that we've been discussing.
1: Yeah. Iron status and nutrients like, uh, biotin or zinc, um, they can certainly help improve the quality and thickness of hair. But the main thing that it does is it kind of changes the life cycle. So think of a life cycle, a hair lives, let's say, 100 human years on average, and then it dies and it's actually reincarnated. So it usually lives a very long time in what's called uh, antigen phase and catagen phase, and then a very short time in what's called telogen phase. So if you're iron deficient or if you're thyroid deficient, it can go into what's called a telogen effluvium, which basically means a whole bunch of hairs abnormally just age to 100 years instantly and start to die and reincarnate. So they're not permanently dead, but they're kind of um, the hair falls out, the stem cell is still in the follicle, but it's going to take it a month or two to start growing again. Um, so uh, very important for that reason. There's often a component of telogen effluvium to post-viral hair loss, which a lot of people have been asking me about recently.
0: hmm hmm Let's shift slightly to uh, another pillar um, around sleep. Um, I think that again, sleep, I think everybody knows that we should be getting good sleep. Uh, but then you have, you know, you get caught into a Netflix, uh, you know, series or you drink some wine or you have a late dinner, let's say, um, and it affects your sleep or you're traveling as I have been. And, you know, you pop, you know, you're jumping over different time zones and then kind of optimizing your sleep becomes difficult, at least trans, you know, at least transiently. Um, what are some practices that you think about um, from the lens of hormone optimization that can improve uh that can improve our sleep you've mentioned sleep apnea I definitely want to talk a little bit about that but what are some what are some practices that uh, that you like to uh, recommend uh, that you think about that can improve sleep
1: I like the 10 3, 2, 1, 0 rule so no caffeine within about 10 hours of sleep um, yes you can check your genetics and get a better idea of if you're a fast or slow metabolizer. And then three and two hours of sleep, no vigorous exercise, and then no large meals of food or any food at all, if you like, especially if you're going to try to optimize your growth hormone during sleep. And then no bright white or blue light, for example, screens within one hour, and then zero snooze in the morning. So that's my good rule of thumb of sleep hygiene. There's been a lot said on this by people who are um, very knowledgeable regarding sleep, like Matt Walker. But using that rule will, um, like assuming there's no pathology, will help more than any other medication or supplement. I'm also a fan of medications and supplements. Um, I might be a bit biased since I'm a physician, but there's some medications like remelteon, which is a melatonin 1 and 2 receptor agonist, but not melatonin receptor 3. That's particularly useful with jet lag or shift work um, sleep pathologies. And then uh, when it comes to like hunger signaling, uh, balancing your orexigenic and anorexigenic signals, those are the two main centers in the hypothalamus where your orexin center makes you kind of like hungry, angry, and awake, and your anorexigenic signal makes you kind of sleepy and um, not hungry. So a lot of people say they eat and then they're able to sleep after they eat some, and that would kind of be a... Um, in part due to an imbalance in those two centers of your hypothalamus.
0: How how do you think about mouth breathing as a way that can impact our sex hormones, if at all? Talking about the importance of taping our mouth at night and being a nose breather, and we you know we talked about the aesthetic benefits of that over time in terms of uh, you know strong jaw and not you know developing sort of a longer face. But I think that there also is something there with carbon dioxide accumulation as well. How do you, do you think about mouth breathing versus nose nose breathing as a way to optimize? Uh, at least sex hormones, uh, transiently or over the long term?
1: Not that there's necessarily particularly something magical about not mouth breathing, but the improved quality of sleep is going to lead to improved growth hormone and androgen and hormone secretion in general. Um, One thing to remember with that is it's particularly important in childhood and early adulthood. Um, That's when you're developing... um, You know the different structures the most yes there can be some changes over time but it's particularly important in childhood Um, with the increasing incidence and prevalence of childhood obesity and metabolic syndrome i certainly see a higher incidence of sleep pathologies including sleep apnea and a lot of times these things go hand in hand with mouth breathing so it's a question of i guess selection bias where is it the chicken or the egg, is it the mouth breathing first, or is it the metabolic syndrome, or is it the sleep apnea? But it's kind of all three, and those should be treated holistically and uh, as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, and I, I would I would add to that, I also think that what uh, I'll often hear from women, at least, and of course my bias is that I tend to uh, deal with more women, which is where I'm drawing a lot of my clinical um, experience from, is that around perimenopause and menopause that they are noticing, it might just be as sudden as one day they just can't sleep anymore. But I also wonder, you know, to your chicken and egg question, like what came first? Is it the reduction in estrogen that's causing the, um, you know, the... Maybe the mouth breathing and the accumulation of carbon dioxide, let's say, in the body, or is it that their mouth has been, you know, that they've been mouth breathing for so long that that's causing the reduction in estrogen? It's sort of like I don't know which one comes first. Let's let's shift slightly. Um, I, I'm watching uh, the time here, and I we're not going to get to the 25 pages of notes that I made uh, in preparation for our conversation today. But I wanted to talk about obesity uh, because I I know that this is something that uh, you are very interested in um, and that you've you've spoken. About. About um, as well as much as you love it or hate it we a lot of times trends we draw from celebrities and of course um, when we think about uh, obesity medications certainly of at least of late um, GLP-1 agonists particularly semaglutide have come into Ozempic have come into um, light maybe because you know the Kardashians are taking them. I don't know, but it just seems that this, this, obe- this obesity medication, uh, or this, um, uh, I don't want to say shortcut because in the case of obesity, uh, it's not, it's not as, it's not as clear cut as calories in calories out, but maybe we can talk a little bit about particular, let's talk about semaglutide. Let's talk about, you know, the trade name, uh, uh, being Ozempic. Um, what does that do to the body. And how can that help? We're not going to talk about the Kardashians taking it. That's their own decision. I don't, we don't know if we're taking it. We don't, also don't know if we're taking it by the way. It's like, allegedly that's what we've heard through the whatever. Um, but what can something like a GLP one agonist do for someone who has tried all the diets, uh, who is obese and is having trouble over who, who wants to lose weight and is having trouble doing so what does that do for, for that individual?
1: Semaglutide is a GLP-1, as you mentioned, and GLP-1s are the do-all medication, address all vectors at the same time, so at least four different mechanisms of action. It affects peripheral ins- insulin sensitivity. It's an incretin, so it affects um, how the pancreas secretes various hormones. It also is centrally active in the central nervous system, affecting uh, appetite and satiety. Um, It also is effective in the gut, affecting gut motility and in the liver, affecting things like gluconeogenesis and, um, glycogen formation and glucose release from the liver. So it's certainly not just an appetite suppressant, but oddly enough, it's often treated as one. Um, it kind of reminds me of the pain medicine crisis 20 or 30 years ago, where so many clinics started doing it just because, um, it was, a something that was profitable to their clinic. And I think given how the last like six to 12 months have gone, a lot of clinics are struggling and they see the potential margin for prescribing GLP-1s. And um, the use has skyrocketed, Um, but often it's not an interdisciplinary team. um, And often the clinics use their personal anecdote to apply that cookie cutter regimen to every individual. For example, low carb and a GLP-1 for everyone, no plan to get them off and no shared decision-making discussion regarding some of the detriments, like colathiasis, like gallbladder attacks, for example, um, or pancreatic inflammation or risk of various carcinomas. So um, it's definitely one of my favorite medications, but at the same time, um, it's just being applied across the board to so many people, what's going to end up happening is a lot of these individuals are not going to be able to get off of it without rebounding and regaining most of the weight. Most studies show 75 to 90% of people regain the weight when you take it away. So the most crucial time to have a knowledgeable healthcare provider overseeing this is as you're weaning down and coming off of it.
0: What type of effects does it have on, if any, uh, once you're, maybe while you're on it, and then if you are coming off of it on lean body mass?
1: Very similar to uh, another like hardcore caloric deficit, potentially a slight bit better because it kind of helps the insulin work a little bit better than it normally did. Insulin is, of course, anabolic hormone as well. That's why bodybuilders take it, but um, it can induce such a significant caloric deficit that you lose a lot of lean body mass in the process of an individual who loses a significant amount of weight. Usually about a third of it is lean body mass.
0: A third. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I'm an av I'll just, you know, state my bias. Like I love to, I love to train. I I love to, uh, I've taken many decades to put on the, you know, and when we say lean body mass, of course, we're talking about many things other than muscle. Uh, but certainly muscle makes up a part of lean body mass. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, that would be really that would be really frightening for me to lose a third of my progress uh let's say that I've put in all the time all the struggles all the sweat all the tears uh, in the gym so that's certainly something to um to consider and I would almost think as a therapeutic you'd almost want to um um and I don't know if this I my, my next question for you is is around the ventral medial hypothalamus and the lipostat but I wonder if um you know if there's a way to maybe reverse diet them, you know, so that, that hyperphagia, you know, that sort of, you know, once they come off of it, I would imagine their appetite might come back. And then maybe then some, Uh, I wonder if there's a way to mitigate that, or have you seen that? um, What are some of the best practices when we're thinking about diet and exercise for these individuals that are coming off of um, these medications?
1: Certainly giving them the tools to develop a diet they can adhere to and an exercise regimen, a movement pastime to last a lifetime is what I like to say. So that way, as they come off, they have those tools to where they're not just sinking in quicksand anymore. They're on more solid ground and they know what to look for when things start to go awry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess two of the most important things would be maintaining that individual's lean body mass throughout the whole process, not going too fast. So good rule of thumb is like, you know, like five to eight pounds a month. That's great loss of body fat. And then as they come off in almost every case, I utilize some sort of, if not medication, supplement to prevent that appetite dysregulation from happening when you finally withdraw the semaglutide. Such as? Some examples of supplements would be like Raulcine. That's an alpha-yohimbine that can help um, regulate appetite. Some people feel nauseous when they take it. Occasionally, if they're more on like the insulin resistant or pre diabetic, or, you know, if they are diabetic, then maybe I do leave them on a low dose of a GLP one for a long time indefinitely. But metformin can be used. Berberine can be used. Um, there's a lot of options. Um, bupropion, low dose naltrexone.
0: My, so I wanted to ask you about the, the lipostat, ventral medial hypothalamus. Do we, do these uh, medications work on, do they work on our sort of set point or is it just some of the, circulating factors like we are reducing let's say um we're reducing our reducing the appetite that kind of thing do we know that if it's working on the lipostat at all or in the in the hypothalamus
1: it certainly helps reset the body weight set point um it varies from individual to individual there's not an exact science but my rule of thumb is let's say an individual's overweight for five years After they're at their new body weight, it takes about a year to get to a new body weight set point. Um, That obviously depends on like what lifestyle factor. That's assuming that they learn like the new lifestyle factors, the diet, the exercise, et cetera.
0: While on the medication. Yeah. Correct. And I think that, um, you know, from my understanding, at least from... um, some of these feedback mechanisms and, you know, the set point, let's say that the brain, um, the brain sets, it seems like the system is rigged in a way at better protecting against fat loss, right? Than it is for fat gain, right? So there is sort of this, like, we are going to make sure that you don't lose fat, but we are very happy to put on excess uh, adipose tissue. And so other than uh, some of these medications, are there ways that we can, um, maybe other than surgery. So we don't put, you know, we're not putting on sleeves. We're not taking, uh, GLP one Agnes. Are there ways to circumvent some of these feedback mechanisms? Because one of the, one of the things that, and I, this is where I've changed my opinion. So I used to be a bit more rigid in my thinking and thinking, well, people who are obese that just don't have the willpower, they need to be, you know, eat more or eat less, move more. Um, and certainly there are, uh, and that's of course, when I was young and stupid and not really understanding that there are many different extrinsic and intrinsic factors, uh, satiation, uh, susceptibility to highly palatable foods, genetic contribute contributors. But if someone who's listening, let's say their family or they themselves might be, um, obese, they've done every diet in the book. They're just looking to maybe try to, uh, get to a healthy BMI. Um, what are, some ways uh in your opinion that we can maybe circumvent some of these feedback mechanisms that are designed to sort of keep us at a higher uh you know at a higher set point.
1: Now, I have seven or eight different tools that I try to p- help pick with the individual to help change behavior regarding diet. And some examples of these, some people consider them tricks. I usually don't call them a trick because it's just kind of affecting physiology like a medication or a supplement Mm -hmm. but one of them would be uh time restricted feeding or like number of meals per day the time of the meal um one of them would be uh the speed at which you eat so one example of that could be you eat three different portions take five minute break in between all of them or you take a turtle bite every x number of bites which is just a very slow bite Another one would be affecting the amount of fiber or protein in your diet. Another one would be just altering the general caloric density of your food. So sometimes that includes um, things that taste like they are calorically dense, but they are not as calorically dense. So there's a whole list of these and uh, calories is just one of them. So if you've tried different diets with just calories, it's probably time to incorporate more of these different tools.
0: Let's talk about timing of your meal. Um, so there's nutrient timing and timing of the meal. Um, when you say timing of the meal, what are you referring to? Is it time of day? Is it the order in which you consume the macros? What, what do you mean by timing of the meal?
1: Timing of the meal would be the time of the day. As far as like nutrient timing, that would be more related to which nutrients are you consuming, how close to exercise, for example, nutrient partitioning. Would be another way to look at that. Mm-hmm.
0: What would be a timing, an example of uh, meal timing? Is it are we are we m- moving the food earlier in the day, potentially when we might be a bit more uh, insulin sensitive, versus eating late at night? Like, what are your what are your thoughts around that?
1: Incorporating what the social situation is, often moving food earlier in the day and then not consuming anything after a certain hour.
0: I really love that because when when fasting sort of intermittent fat, I mean, it's been around forever, but, you know, when it sort of became sort of the premier topic, we'll say, um, in healthcare, I myself was doing the 16-8, you know, making sure that I was fasting for 16 hours and like not pushing my feeding window until 12 or one o'clock. And I was starving, you know, uh, like marving starving, like I could not, I could eat the house. And I found that when I moved back to more of a, you know, I, I tend to work out in the morning, so I don't eat before I work out just because I, not for any reason other than I don't like the feeling of having food in my, in my stomach when I'm training. Um, But when I would come home, let's say from the gym and start eating, that really felt great for me. And I actually have found just personally, just the end of one that I am. That I actually like to eat most of my food by about three or four o'clock, like in exactly like with my grandmother, you know, the senior special, we could go and have like, you know, dinner at four. And I'm super happy that way. And when I eat late, you know, I have, you know, you mentioned Ura. Uh, well, I think that there's some, let's say, uh, improvements in the technology, but what it will consistently show me is. When I eat later later in the day, my deep sleep suffers and my HRV, my heart rate variability is also much worse. Um, so I actually like to finish eating by about three or four o'clock, and I find that I am just happy just happier that way. And that's not not everybody's like that. That's just my own chronotype and what I what I have found to work well in my life. But I'm um I'm happy to hear that you're also maybe noticing maybe it's a certain maybe it's a certain pattern uh, of people that where we move the food a little earlier in the day and that 10 3 2 1 that you were saying you know like making sure that the food and the you know not a big meal like 2 to 3 hours before meal time i have found that to be incredibly useful as well both myself and with with the clients that i work with too agreed um, let's talk about speed of eating cuz i think that this is really interesting i will often counsel women to chew their food 10 times on each side uh, or, you know, five to 10 times on each side. And that in and of itself seems to be just an act of rebellion that no, cause people just, they, go, they, they gobble, like they swallow their food. And, you know, I've talked about uh, a little bit about the cephalic phase of digestion before uh, on the show but when you're chewing your food, it's literally the only opportunity that you have for mechanical, like to break up the food mechanically. After you swallow, all of it's chemical, right? All of it is the acids and the enzymes and the, you know, and the assimilation in that way. But that your your you know your teeth are the only time where you are literally ripping apart the food mechanically. Uh, I wondered if you might uh, speak to um, when when you're talking about speed of eating um what are some of the cues let's say like you know just clinically when you're talking to a patient and you're trying to get them to slow down like my husband is like this as well you know he like he eats his food and i'm just i've just gotten i've just gotten to the protein like i've just you know i've I've just gotten to the uh, to the main part of the meal and he's finished what are some of the what are some of the ways that you counsel someone to slow down uh eating their meal
1: one way and i took this from the it was a new england journal of medicine study on pediatric patients actually but they did something called a turtle bite, which um, they did one really slow bite at regular intervals throughout the meal. And it was kind of fun. It's kind of a game that you can play um, along with kiddos as well. So that's one good way. You can also divide your meal into portions, three or even four, even six. And then you can eat that portion with whatever speed that you want to, but then you have to wait five minutes before starting the next portion. So it kind of teaches you to um, even out that portion over five minutes, and then you can just continuously eat through the meal. So that's another way to do it. Um, but uh, finding a strategy that will uh, that the patient does not hate is probably the most important thing, <laughs> because if they really don't like it, then they're not going to like add that as a tool towards intuitive eating. So some people have just kind of like thrown out intuitive eating. But the way I think of it is, some people are going to. Um, be able to learn the tools to do it. So it makes sense to teach them the tools like eating speed.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great. And I, I feel like these are, uh, I agree with you. I don't think that they're hacks. They're not tricks. They're, they're just some of the principles of eating properly. Um, same with protein uh, and fiber um, in the diet. Can you speak a little bit about the thermal effect of food uh, and why maybe a hundred calories of, protein, let's say, and even though we're not, we're talking about, um, you mentioned caloric density, certainly protein is a calorically dense, usually most sources of protein are calorically dense, but, um, can you speak to maybe the thermal effect of food, why we want to be consuming or prioritizing protein and what effect fiber has on, um, on appetite, uh, regulation, satiety, transit time as we're, as the bolus is sort of moving through the, um, through the digestive tract.
1: So the thermic effect of food is certainly one important aspect to keep in mind it's um, mostly just scientifically and statistically significant Um, so there's a a different calorie level for each macronutrient you think about fats having nine uh, calories per gram alcohol having seven which is pretty close to fat protein and carbs having four but because protein is slightly harder to burn then depending on the protein Perhaps slightly less than that. And there's a lot of other kind of special exceptions. Like I believe allulose, which is kind of a natural sugar alcohol sort of carb is 0. 0.25 or 0. 0.5 kcals per gram, partly just because how much of it's up, like taken up into the cell. But, um, that effect, uh, the thermic effect of protein can help, um, in what's called electron uncoupling. Um, so, uh, I think that. This is kind of a good analogy with carnitine, the thermic effect of carnitine, which is a protein, two amino acids, that can um, alter temperature regulation. I always feel like I'm a bit warmer and it actually lets me sleep a bit cooler than I would be able to otherwise. So that's just some of the uh, benefits of protein. You also mentioned fiber. Um, So uh, there's dietary fiber, non-dietary fiber. Of dietary fiber, there's soluble fiber, insoluble fiber there's also resistant starch so all that to say not all fiber is created equal i think of it as fish food for the microbiome you have good fish you have bad fish you want to feed your good fish Um, in your aquarium or terrarium really it's a combined aquarium terrarium you have um, the prebiotic which is the fish food intake you also have your probiotic which is the actual fish you have your postbiotic which is kind of what they produce they of it as like fish tank cleaners, preventing biofilms or gunk on the sides. And then you also have how regularly you empty it. So like at what interval, if you have a ton of fish overgrowth, maybe one of the symptoms of that is that your body's trying to empty that tank all the time. So perhaps that's somewhat therapeutic, but also um, like fairly disturbing. So thinking about how each type of fiber will improve that. So the answer is not necessarily just put more psyllium husk powder in. That's just one type of fiber. Um, Thinking about um, what you need more of and what the benefit of that would be. For example, what would happen if you added more resistant starch? Or what would happen if you added more um, like soluble fiber?
0: One of the uh, tricks of the trade, we'll say, Um, I many years ago competed in a figure competition Uh, And of course, you know, towards the show, you are very much in a calorically restricted um, state. And one of the ways to at least initially mitigate uh, the hunger, I mean, the hunger always finds you, but uh, at least uh, one of the ways to help uh, attenuate that is to increase fiber intake. It does seem to have a... um, it does seem to send satiety signals. It does seem to uh, at least bring down the appetite somewhat. And then, you know, the further calorically restricted you are, it just, like, as I said, the hunger always seems to find you. Um, but it is kind of a, you know, it is is a solid trick that, you know, bodybuilders, figure competitors alike have been using for uh, many years to try and in a calorically um, restricted state to try and uh, improve at least, uh, at least, you know, temporarily uh, hunger signals too. Mm-hmm. How does, um, let's talk a little bit about leptin because I, I think that this relates a little bit to, um, to what we've been talking about. You know, you were talking about some of these uh, things that you use, intermittent fasting, timing of the meal, speed of eating protein and fiber in the diet. I think leptin, uh, as it relates to, uh, its role in the lipostat, um, certainly uh our audience will know that it um it the amount of leptin that's circulating is sort of proportional to your body fat mass. Uh I think it's also, and maybe you can comment on this a little bit, I I believe it is also strongly impacted by short term energy balance as well. So if you are um uh let's say if you are fasted uh over you know you are gonna get you know as you might uh, infer that the longer you fast, the hungrier you are going to be versus if you start off the day, let's say with protein, some protein and fibers we were talking about, then you will, you will feel more satisfied. Your, your propensity for cravings and erratic hunger again is going to be pulled down. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, leptin and its role? Uh, let's say in the lipostat or the adipostat, um, where are the leptin receptors, uh, concentrated is it is it just in the brain uh is it throughout the body like where how does how does leptin work um and how what is its role in um in our appetite and fat mass
1: leptin is a satiety hormone that's produced in adipose cells it's one of the major hormones that is involved in adipose brain or fat brain crosstalk uh, ghrelin and or other ones but because leptin is a satiety hormone, you would think that people that have more satiety would be at lower BMIs, um, because you're not hungry all the time. But part of that trend is explained by what's called leptin resistance. So as you mentioned, people at higher BMIs tend to have higher leptin levels. But one way to measure if, they're, um, like if their leptin receptor is sensitive enough, um, as you mentioned a lot in the hypothalamus, That's one of the theories behind why precocious puberty happens is at higher BMIs, you tend to go into puberty early more often. Um, And part of that's just because of more leptin signaling on the hypothalamus causing gonadotropin releasing hormone, and then secondary to that causing FSH and LH to be secreted at an earlier age. But anyway, um, when you have the leptin receptor that is not as sensitive, you would think that you would have better satiety. But you actually have more hunger signaling one of the major inputs in this is the level of triglycerides so if you have very low epa which is omega-3 that can help decrease triglycerides or if you just have high triglycerides all the time then that can affect your leptin receptor sensitivity that's why occasionally using tools like time restricted feeding from time to time let your triglycerides drop down lower And by the way, think of triglycerides as your basic unit of fat in the blood, whereas glucose is your basic unit of carb in the blood. So your pool between the both of those is energy in the blood. Um, So at some point, if both of those pools decrease, then um, leptin will restore its more normal function with satiety. That kind of also explains the phenomenon behind why when people start intermittent fasting, it takes them a few days or a few weeks to get into it.
0: And so when we think about, so when we're we're talking about leptin, is there, do we know if there's any sexual dimorphisms in the, uh, in leptin signaling? Because one of the, one of the things I've noticed, at least for women doing, let's say a, a therapeutic intervention of a ketogenic diet, let's say, is we might, we might calculate their TDEE and they come nowhere close to it you know, and maybe that's the, maybe that's the increase in fat. Maybe that's the, because I sort of put them on a moderate to high fat, moderate protein, and then uh, sort of a lower carbohydrate diet to start. But they can't they can't seem to eat more than like, you know, 1,100, 12 cal- 1,200 calories, let's say, in the first, you know, depending on certainly there's variance there, but like around 1,100, 1,200 cal- because they are just so full. Uh, and I don't know that I've noticed that in men, Do we know if there's any uh, sex differences in leptin signaling?
1: There's significant difference. In fact, the reference ranges are significantly different between males and females. Um, I don't know exactly why that is, but one of the obvious differences is that females in general have more body fat, so your body fat. If the body fat percentage is higher, for example, let's compare a female at 22% body fat, like quite lean to a male at 22% body fat, um, which is the same body fat percentage. I would think that their um, like leptin sensitivity and also level itself would be relatively normal leptin along with ketones and lactate um, and other things like that are very likely going to be included, like I'm thinking five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, um, someone will utilize a CGM and it'll show them their glucose and all of those parameters as well. So when that happens, it's going to be particularly interesting because uh, obviously you can change your diet in real time in response to things other than glucose.
0: Yeah, I've I've had a, a couple of, um, uh, people who sit on advisory boards, let's say, or of levels or CGM, uh, CGM company. And that's one of my, that's one, of that's on my Christmas list. It's like, I don't want to just see the glucose. Like I want to see all the other things. I want to see insulin. I want to see all of these other, I want to see ketones. I want to see all the things at the same time. Cause I think that that's when we really get into the power of sort of real time modifications as you were, as you were alluding to. Um, lastly, I know that we're a little bit over, but I just, uh, would love your thoughts on. the genetic components, um, of obesity. Um, certainly our genes have not changed. You can make the argument, um, that our genes have been the same for several tens, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, but I think, and I think that the propensity for obesity has always been there. Um, and perhaps it's, you know, environment and like access to more food that we have now, that's allowing that sort of gene to express itself. But my, I think my question here is why don't all of us then become obese? Like you would think that, you know, from the evolutionary lens, you know, the ability to put on weight and keep it on would have been an advantage in any other time other than 2023. So yeah, so maybe that's like a a silly question, but that's sort of something that I think about. Like, why don't all of us become obese? I know personally, um, if I'm not actively working on my health, like, you know, it dissolves into entropy. Like you, you know, you look at my, any members of my, on my Portuguese side, on my Lebanese side, uh, sort of my uh, ancestors, all obese. So That's my question to you is like, why don't all of us become obese? You know, if we all have the sort of ability to put on, it seems like, endless amounts of uh, of fat. And we've spoken to, you know, fat researchers, Dr. Ben Bickman, on like what happens to the fat cell and, and mm-hmm. so forth. But why don't all of us become obese? You would think that uh, from an evolutionary lens, that would be an advantage.
1: Yeah, uh, this is a really interesting question. So you can kind of look at two different groups of people. You can look at people that are seemingly morbidly obese, no matter what. Um, no matter what, like whatever intervention, even the strongest interventions that you can um, apply, look at that group of people. And then the other group of people would be on the the other end of the spectrum. Um, the seemingly non-obese population, despite not trying to not be obese. For example, after I had um, my first son, I uh, had put on about like 30 or 40 pounds of body fat. So I did lifestyle interventions and such, and then I addressed that. Um, but Um, So I would not be in this category. I would be here. Um, but over here in this category would be um the population that eats whatever they want. They do not exercise. Why are they not obese? And there's been some good retrospective cohort studies and the things that they've found, not that that's the highest level of evidence, but the things that they have found significant is They tend to have higher production of thyroid hormones, and they also tend to eat less than they report eating, significantly less of calorically dense food, but they do eat significantly less, which is odd because the average individual, even the average doctor and dietitian, eats about 10% more calories even when they are trying their best to rigorously track it. So um, part of that is genetic. So over here on this group of people that is just obese pretty much no matter what, then they likely have everything. So, you know, they likely have insulin resistance, they likely have other hormonal issues, they likely have uh, mental health concerns as well, perhaps binge eating, and they have genetics and epigenetics all working against them. So they have everything working against them. And then the other group over on this extreme has everything working for them. Perhaps they wouldn't have survived a survivorship bias, right? Perhaps... Um, 8,000 years ago, they would not have survived unless they were in a perfect situation, but the genes just happened to come together that way. So, um, I guess the, the takeaway for that would be, yes, genetics matter, but epigenetics likely matter more. If you're thinking about like the different, the, the high incidence of gestational diabetes, that's something that can be treated relatively well and probably better than we're treating it in a lot of individuals. And that for sure is gonna have an effect on the offspring. You know that if a mother has gestational diabetes, then there's going to be her incidence of developing type 2 diabetes lifetime is at least 50%. So um thinking about how the uh like the modifiable risk factors, epigenetic and lifestyle wise, is where we want to concentrate our time. But it's important to not completely dismiss the genetic component.
0: You know, kind of coming back to this testosterone, like kind of indirectly talking about testosterone, but like the palatability of foods um, and dopamine release. I know in some individuals, you know, when we when you're talking about those individuals on that spectrum where no matter what happens, you know, no matter what they do, they can't seem to, and it seems like they might have uh, a higher dopamine release, let's say, in response to uh, some of these higher palatable foods, uh, of course, which is going to result in the likelihood of them, you know, immediately, they're going to try to replicate what happened immediately prior to that dopaminergic release, which is like eating these highly palatable foods. So the, you know, the, the statistical significance of them, like trying to replicate that again, is going to be much higher. Um, Do we see uh, a big difference there between, you know, you're thin, no matter what, and maybe you're morbidly obese, no matter what, do we see a change in dopamine release? Uh, Even maybe uh, we were talking about leptin and like a sense of fullness? Like, is there a differential with leptin resistance, let's say, uh, across these individuals as well?
1: Between the two groups, there is a a difference in all of the various categories, including dopaminergic signaling, food addiction, uh, what some people refer to it as, but there's new medications. Um, One's a combination of bupropion and low-dose naltrexone, and that can be particularly useful in situations where um, the dopaminergic component is altered. Uh, for example, binge eating disorder, um, whereas if you're comparing two groups that are closer, for example, maybe some, a group in the middle, they're overweight. Um, it's maybe Perhaps it's surprising that they're not in a morbidly obese category. They're just overweight, but they're not metabolically healthy and they're at risk of sequela downstream to that. Perhaps there's some hormonal dysfunction as well, maybe hypogonadism or whatnot, or uh, just insulin resistance then there's not necessarily a huge change in um, other things that I consider more minor, like um, leptin or uh, dopaminergic signaling. Often that is lifestyle related or perhaps a bit epigenetic, just from um, being in a similar spot for so many years.
0: So obviously, I'm a meat eater, love meat. And you would think you know, with all the things that we've been talking about, uh, you know, protein as a, you know, the thermo- th- thermal effect of food, we didn't talk about um, uh, sensing in the gut and 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 um, CCK or anything. But um, the other thing that you would think is that we would go and pardon, you know, my language here, but you would think that we would go apeshit over, <laughs> over meat. But there's kind of a limit, like we've been talking about the meat sweats, right? But it's, full complement of amino acids, lots of like usually meat comes with some fat. So, you know, you add some acid, some salt, some heat. Uh, it's like high protein, high fat. Why don't we go crazy? Like I can eat meat and then I have to stop. Like I, I crave meat certainly, but then I can't, I can't overeat it.
1: Yeah. There's a few reasons for this. And obviously not all cuts of meat are equal. So there's certainly some meats that I could think of usually of high caloric density, and um, usually raised and processed in a certain way to not to be both very palatable, but not as satiating. But if you're thinking about uh, wild game is a good example. Um, so it's often very lean and is not super calorically dense and takes a long time to chew. And um, those components make it very easy to one, get tired of eating meat. You're just Your jaw is literally tired. Especially if we are eating every bit of cartilage, like tendon and ligament, yeah. and you're eating every tiny little bit. That's how meat is supposed to be eaten. There's studies that look at people who eat meat like that. For example, when I went to Nepal, that's just how everybody ate it. They didn't waste a bit of the chicken. And uh, that's how I eat it as well. We raise chickens. We have eggs. We've harvested our own chickens start to finish, like, um, all the way. Um, and it definitely makes you appreciate the process of um, like one, mm-hmm. raising an animal and how hard that is and how amazing it is that chickens and eggs still cost what they do. Right. But also two that if you're going to do that, then you kind of have that feeling, yes, I'm going to eat as much of this as I can. And that's going to just like, you know, eating the gristle makes you pretty tired.
0: Yeah. It, as you're, as you're talking, you're, I'm, I'm thinking about my, um, my husband's family, they're from Italy and they literally use absolutely everything. Like the intestines become sausages. And even sometimes like that's, you know, a delicacy to have that or the brain or, you know, whatever it is. And, um, I think in some ways in, in, in North America, at least, or you know, in Westernized societies, Italy included in this now, uh, we, we kind of, maybe not Italy yet, but we sort of, we've, we're so divorced from the land. I love that you raise, chickens. I think that that gives you such an appreciation of being of this earth and the energy that is required that goes into raising an animal and then, you know, maybe slaughtering it humanely and you get to sort of see the full cycle. I have a a friend who is very much into uh, gardening and plants. And I remember he was over once we were having coffee together and I had put out just like a little bowl of, you know, snacks, you know, like some fruit and, and there was a pint of blackberries that i had put into uh on on a plate and he's like do you know how much you know what it takes to like we just pick up these pints of you know blackberries blueberries strawberries at the at the grocery store but you know like the bush like you know how much you have, like love that had to go into the plant in order for you to pick a pint of blackberries off of it or you know raspberries or whatever whatever it was and it was um I had never thought of that before, like admittedly and ashamedly. I had never considered what it took to create a you know to, to raise and grow a raspberry bush and then to be able to sort of uh, enjoy the fruits of and uh, enjoy the fruits of it and in the same way, you know, raising chickens and really being able to um, be intimately aware of the soil and the environment and the sun and all all the things that go into, Uh, raising an animal that's one thing i think um i'm very interested in 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 exploring further is is really connecting to not just being on this earth but also you know maybe philosophically maybe we're getting to your spirit category here but like being uh, not just on the earth but of this earth um and recognizing life and death and how beautiful uh that all is so
1: yeah it certainly gives a good appreciation of what goes into maintaining physiology, and that's part of social determinants of health. So I was very fortunate to be, I guess, a stereotypical Kansan and grow up and currently live and um, try to live off the land as much as possible. And even thinking about how much we live off the land with a lot of animals and huge gardens and such, and the boys helping with it, it's probably still less than 10%, probably less than 5% of what we actually consume. But yeah, we're definitely waxing a bit metaphysical here, but it is an important Aspect of health to keep in mind?
0: Well, I'm, I have really, really, really enjoyed our conversation. I think that some of the topics that we talked about, slightly different than how we normally talk about them, specifically focusing on uh, androgens, uh, hair loss. Uh, talking about obesity, which I think is an important um, subject that I think the clinicians that listen to the show uh, will find very uh, very helpful. And even uh, you know the the moms let's say and the women who are just trying to live better lives, I think will have a deeper appreciation of some of the drivers uh, around an obese you know someone who um, uh, who is obese and is having maybe uh, struggle with it. So wanted to thank you for your time and your brilliance. this has just been a fabulous conversation. Thank you.
1: My pleasure thank you.